Our New Testament reading and our sermon text is out of Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we come. We come because you have called us to come. In fact, God, you have come to us. You have come to feed us from your word and you have spoken and revealed yourself to us through it. Would you give us the ability to hear, to listen, and to be changed by your word? Jesus, would you bless this holy day, this holiday, as we come on the Sabbath to worship you? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and Thanksgiving is the second best holiday of the year. What is the first? Adults may be too sheepish to answer, but children, I know you're not. Children, what is your favorite holiday of the year? Christmas. Christmas? Yes. I guess anything with candy. Just a sound. That is wonderful, my son Calvin. Any others? Easter. Easter. Where are the Patriots here? Fourth of July. Come on, guys. I know Matt loves a good lacrosse. Fourth of July. All right, well done, well done. What have I done? (laughs) Well done, children. Indeed, there are suckers. If you can come and tell me after the service your favorite holiday and why. And I will tell you what my favorite sermon or a favorite um, holiday is later in the service. But Thanksgiving is fantastic because I believe uh, we come to the point in the year where we have forgotten the conflicts from the last conflicts last year likely from last Christmas or whatever has come before this where you've gathered with family. And though today there are many who are informalists, meaning they hate tradition, Thanksgiving is that day where they put that all aside and say, bring on the traditions, right? Every year we always watch what? Maybe the Thanksgiving Day Parade, maybe football, maybe it's a wonderful life. We always play Uno, Ticket to Ride, Monopoly, or some other game. We always eat, maybe green bean casserole, maybe sweet potatoes, something with the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top for some, maybe stuffing. See, these unspoken rules and traditions 
facilitate the greatness of thanksgiving. That's what they're intended to do. And if the rules may be broken, perhaps thanksgiving is lost for some. Well, in recent years, I've actually discovered another tradition that people love to watch. It is the National Dog Show. Do any of you watch this? You seen this? Yeah, oh my goodness. Amy, how did I not know this about you? Well, this actually started in 1879. Right? This has been going on for what is it? I'm not going to do the math and embarrass myself, but many years, many years. And it occurs actually the weekend before Christmas. But then they air it. They have a two-hour special that happens uh, on, the, uh, on Thanksgiving Day. It's in that strange little half an hour between the parade and football, so we can discover it. But in truth, I understand little to nothing of how these dogs are judged. But off to the side, you always see the judges, right, expressionless and scribbling their notes. And what I gather, right, is if the dog obeys, runs through the cones, up and down, what have you, they'll get a good score, right? They may even be the best in show, just as Winston, the French bulldog, was last year, beating out Claire, the Scottish deerhound. Twas a nail-biter, I am sure. Claire won it two years in a row. Good for her. You'll have to tune in to see what happens this year. But the National Dog Show, and watching it in, in past years, or at least parts of it, I believe it paints a picture of how many of us view religion how many of us view God and relate to him. Life is a grand test, one where you are constantly and mercilessly judged. God remains quiet, distant, scribbling his notes with no expression on his face. Some people love this. Why? Because they just want to know the rules so they have something to measure their success by. Some love it because they know if they do the right things, then God will give them what they want, a treat, a prize, something else, maybe heaven. Some love it because, their own, uh, because by their own activity, they can figure out where they stand in light of others. They can compare. I am doing better. But for others, they hate it. Why? Because they cannot not think of God like this. They only picture him as the judge with the clipboard in the corner and the score sheet. Is this who the Lord is? Or is he more than an expressionless judge that you must impress by how well you can live for his rules? See, thus far in the book of Mark, Jesus has been revealed as the Messiah. That is the, the prophesied and the promised king. And he's been bringing the kingdom of God and proclaiming the very gospel of God. And he's been calling everyone everywhere to repent and believe in him. Now, the shocking piece has not been that he's the Messiah, though that is shocking. But it's, but it's that in Mark, he has been consistently shown to be God in the flesh, Yahweh. And he's been shown that through his authority. He's done that with his authority to teach, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to cleanse lepers, to forgive sins. I need more fingers to have, there we go, to have fellowship with sinners, freeing them to feast with him. And our text today is again another authority text. Who has authority over the law? It's the context is the Sabbath, but the law is what is in mind. We'll get more to that in a moment. But what God teaches us today through Mark is that Jesus is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord, living lawfully himself. 
And, there's, and those who bear the name Christian must live for him. They must not live for the commands or his law or the rules, if you will, as a way to control God, as a way to show themselves righteous or lovable before God. It's not what those are for. So said simpler still, and as it, is set, as it says in the bulletin, Jesus lives lawfully as the Lord of the Sabbath. So you must live for the Lord, not for the rules. You'll see this in two points. The first is in verses 23 to 28. And again, there is where we'll see Jesus revealed as the Lord of the Sabbath. If you look back in verse 23, it's the Sabbath. And the disciples and Jesus likely, perhaps, are heading to the synagogue. And the disciples are plucking heads of grain to eat on the way. And now in verse 24, we hear the Pharisees' voices for the first time, actually. Before this point, it's either people or the Pharisees' scribes who are either thinking questions or asking questions. But now the Pharisees speak. There's an escalation of conflicts that happen throughout Mark 2. And let's pause and answer. We use the word Pharisees, but who are they? Who are we talking about? Well, there were many factions among the Jews in that day, and some used uh, politics, some used affluence to gain authority. But the, the Pharisees sought influence how? Through godliness. Through godliness. See, they weren't priests, but they were normal people who were educated, and they became religious teachers and rabbis due to their studiousness, their education with that, and their allegiance to the law. So what is the law? Since we're defining terms, what are we saying when we say the law? Well, the law in Hebrew was the word Torah, right? Torah means instruction. It's actually a more warm. When we think law, we think something cold, right? Guilt and innocence, law. It's more warm than that. It's instruction. And more specifically, the law, the Torah, is, is about God's loving instruction or his commands in the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books tell the story of creation, of the fall into sin, of God's promises and his commands to his people. And they also tell of his instruction, how you are to live with and for a holy God in relationship. So the Pharisees, they held immense influence and authority because of how they loved and sought to practice the law. Do you know who Jesus hung around with? Why are Pharisees always in the picture? Because theologically, Jesus is most like the Pharisees. They share the most in common. So out of their passion to follow the Torah and law, what they do is they form an intricate web of rules that have the aim of honoring God but have the effect of crushing man. So in verse 24, we see what, what they're doing. We must honor God with the rules that we have made, right? And so they're quick to point out what is not lawful. According to the law, the disciples actually are permitted to pluck ears of grain for food. This is in De Deuteronomy 23, 25. It's just as long as they are not reaping, that is stealing the harvest for themselves. But that's not actually the Pharisees' concern here. The Pharisees' concern is that they're plucking the grains on the Sabbath. They say, you're working, and work is forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, there are two marks for the Jew. Why is, so this is why the Sabbath is the flashpoint. It's because it's one of the two marks for the Jews that show that they were set apart from the world. The first was male circumcision, and the second was observing the Sabbath. Both of those found in Genesis. And keeping the Sabbath, though, it's one of the Ten Commandments later, it's actually rooted in creation. 
In Genesis 2, on the seventh day, what does God do? He, sa- he Sabbaths, right? He said rest. He, and rest, instead of rest, we could even think first, he ceases from work, right? Because God doesn't need to rest, but he actually gives this rest as a model for us and as a gift to humanity. So in verses 25 to 26, Jesus responds to them about their question and their accusation. Jesus answers, have you never read what David did? Right? In 1 Samuel 21, David, who was not yet king, he and his friends were on the run from King Saul, who was trying to kill them. And to survive, they ate the bread of presence. What is that? Well, the bread of presence was the bread that was set apart in the, it says, in the house of God. You'd find it in the temple. As in, it was set apart as an offering or a gift to God. And then God would take that bread and he'd actually give it to the priests to eat. It was only for the priests to eat. And anyone else eating it could be liable to punishment of death. And Jesus here is showing the law of need trumps the law of ceremony. Right? Following the rules for rules' sake is not what the law has ever been about. And he's proving this with David, the great patriarch who they would honor. And Jesus clarifies or, or strengthens his argument in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, because the law, the Torah, is about loving instruction, it's aimed at man having life. It was aimed at man having love from and with God. That's what it was aimed towards. So David and his friends, nor the disciples, acted unlawfully. And see, a weekly Sabbath was a loving gift for mankind to delight in, to find rest in, to find fulfillment in God in, and restoration with him. Now, this sermon, believe it or not, is actually not about the Sabbath. But because I'm preaching, I get to say a bit more about it. Because the Sabbath is just the context. But I remember about a year ago when we were meeting on Sundays uh, for Sunday fellowships for meals and kind of a Sunday school type thing in our homes. And someone talked to Pastor Matt after one of the days and, he, and they said to him, today felt like a holiday. Today felt like a holiday. In truth, when it feels like a holiday, we are getting closer to what the Sabbath was about weekly fellowship, feasting on God's word and feasting with his people, coming to the Lord in prayer. And you know why it's called a holy day? Because this is where where the idea of holiday comes from, holy day. We gather to come. And indeed, this is my favorite holiday because, not because I'm more spiritual, no, it's because we get to do it once a week. That's the best kind of holiday. And because God promises to meet with us as Matt has spoken of earlier. In any case, Jesus, in verse 28, says, The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The bare phrase of Son of Man, what it means in the most simplest way, means human being. That's what Son of Man means. But Jesus is not saying human beings are Lord over the Sabbath, though most of us live that way. I get to do what I want. I'm the Lord. I decide what I do on the Sabbath. But Jesus is actually alluding to an Old Testament text to Daniel 7. If you want to look back, that's our Old Testament text today. And it's a vision that Daniel is seeing of a son of man. So what? A human, a man coming, coming to the ancient of days, that is God. And God gives him, get this, an everlasting dominion, eternal dominion, glory, kingdom, 
all peoples, nations, languages to serve the Son of Man. See, God shares his glory with no one. So who is that Son of Man? He cannot be but a man. But clearly he looks like a man. He can only be God, perhaps a God-man, if you would. And this is, in fact, who Jesus is. When Jesus says, the, as he does here, the Son of Man, and referring to himself, he means that one in Daniel 7. Perhaps the Pharisees and his disciples don't understand this. They think Son of Man, man, they don't understand the significance yet of what Jesus is saying about himself. But it will become clear in Mark 14 when Jesus quotes this, and then the Pharisees say, blasphemy. What else do we need to hear? We need to kill him. But here, Jesus is showing that Son of Man, he is Lord, even over the Sabbath, And so in other words, who has the authority over the law, over the Sabbath? Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, not the Pharisees. In the Reformation, uh, the Roman Catholic world was an intricate system of rules. There was an authority structure from the local priests to the cardinals to the pope, right? And of the rules, there was one in particular that was a huge flashpoint, and that was the selling of indulgences, right? These were slips of paper that were from the Pope, that if you bought them, right, they would get you, or shorten rather, your time in purgatory, or some of your family's time in purgatory. Now, purgatory is that intermediate state when someone dies before they can go to heaven. They need a bit more purification from their sin, a bit more purifying of their love for God. That's what purification, and I I listened to a Catholic priest speak on this yesterday to make sure I wasn't lying to you. But there was a slogan in order that they would use to sell them. They had a great marketer named Johann Tetzel who said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, does Alex know it? The soul from purgatory springs. That's pretty nifty. The coffer being a chest to receive those coins. But do you see the rule here? You see, they said, do, do this and you can be free from the hellish place of purgatory. Right? If your rule keeping stinks... Just do this rule. If you do this rule, then you'll get into heaven sooner. You see, this was the flashpoint between reformers and Rome because reformers understood that the problem is not one of an external rule keeping. Right? John Calvin said man's nature, his heart, is a perpetual factory of idols. We're pumping them out. Martin Luther said, I am more, this is fantastic. Martin Luther said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, me, self. See, the reformers understood and the Bible teaches that you don't need anyone else to make an intricate system of rules for you. You can do that all by yourself, thinking it will get you to God. Your heart is prone to this. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, the Lord says right after this, I, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The Lord understands our hearts. Our hearts and minds are wholly known and they're wholly exposed. Your game is seen by God. And so one application for you and me today is to see that that Pharisee-like heart lies in you. The best intentions of following rules to honor God, as the Pharisees sought to do, give way to creating a system by which you think you can please God. You can make him love you. 
Perhaps, how, how do we do this? Perhaps you clean the outside of your life, right? Here's a, a principle. You, you dress the part, you sing the songs, you say the right things with the right kind of language, and you go to the right places like church or religious meetings, and you say, God is pleased with me because of that. Now, when I describe that, that picture, many of us think of what maybe we'd call the formalists, right? It's those people who look put together. They're wearing their Sunday best. They clean themselves up. They sing the proper songs with smart-sounding language. Even in their prayers, they have that. Maybe they don't smile, but they think and look holy, others might think. And others might think we, we feel judged because we're not following their rules and standards. They sound like Pharisees. Is that you? Are you a formalist on that end, cleaning the cup on the outside? Well, what if perhaps you're an informalist? What I mean is that you dress the part how in our day by not cleaning yourself up. You have your graphic tee on. You sing the right songs with those 10 words 20 times. Your prayers are hyper-informal to Daddy God. And you daily look for and expect emotional highs for yourself and everyone else. Do you know what you might be? A Pharisee, right? See, the problem with formalism and informalism is that they are both external rule-keeping games. They're just different rules, or they're different sets of rules, I should say. You're looking to those things to substantiate your and others' faith. The systems aren't the problem. It's your heart. Your heart is the problem, See, we could take any beautiful system built off sensible rules and commands like the Pharisees did, and we can turn it into a hellish nightmare for everyone, including ourselves, measuring ourselves if we're worthy of this God's love. See, the great irony of the rule keepers, they stand and they accuse the one who created the law, who gave loving instruction, the law which defines even his character. That's where it flows from, his heart. They want to take the Sabbath, which the Sabbath is a big fat, I love you, to humanity from God. They want to take a gift and they want to ruin it. See, Jesus knows the hearts of all, for he is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. And all of our attempts to make rule-keeping systems, to measure if we're good enough, to make those rule-keeping games to say, God, I'm lovable, I'm lovable. They're simply rubbish. They're nothing before God. This is good news. Why? Because God doesn't love you on account of them. He loves you in and through Christ. See, ask God today to reveal your rule-keeping games. You all have them. I do too. That you employ thinking that they will bring you near. Jesus has already come near. That's what's happening in the passage. There he stands. You need only repent of such games and believe in him. All of God's commands, all of God's rules, if you will, when they are rightly seen with the aim as living with and for, loving God, they will be seen rightly. They facilitate, if you will, the relationship with God, but they are not the substance of it. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So live for him, not for the rules. And uh, into the next point, into our next six verses, or the last six verses, we see that Jesus, with all the authority of being Lord, does what? He lives lawfully. See, our sections of scripture today are showing two conflicts and one climax, okay? 
Verses 23 to 28 28 is the the setup. It's the, the rising tension. And it's leading to this showdown in the synagogue. And so in verse 1, Jesus enters the synagogue. And verse 2, the Pharisees are lurking, right? They're watching like a lion ready to pounce if Jesus would heal someone. Why would healing be breaking the Sabbath, you might ask? Well, it's not, Jesus shows. But the web of Pharisees' rules said that the physicians of the day could heal somebody or help somebody if there was immediate danger, right? If, there, if, if it was life-saving, But if it was non-threatening injury, if there was a handicap of a person, these aren't necessary, right? They're not in, this is not an emergency. So if you do anything to help, that's work. So remember back in Mark 1, when those people, it was, it was, Jesus was in Peter's home. All the people waited to come until when? To the, yes, until the Sabbath was done. It was such a taboo thing for them to come to get healed or be exercised demons, In verse 3, Jesus calls this man who we heard about in verse 1, or you read in verse 1, this man with a withered hand. This man likely comes front and center, and his shame is put on display for everyone. right? Because if you remember from Mark 2, to be handicapped in this day, to be maimed in such a way, was such a matter of shame. Because what your life showed is that you are a burden to society, to your family. There's no help. You were seen as worthless. And here now, Jesus puts him front and center. And here now, notice who starts asking questions. It's Jesus. Jesus starts. Verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or kill? Silence. Perhaps it was even that long. What will Jesus do next? This is the climax, right here. This is the climax. Verse five, Jesus looked around at all of them and he had pure, white, hot anger. These are the teachers of Israel intended to instruct people how to live for the God who loves them. These shepherds of God's people are blind to the suffering of the people. They care not if this man or his family's life, dignity, or purpose could be restored. Jesus threatens their system of rules and their idolatry of authority, and they hate him for it. Jesus feels anger and grief, sorrow over their hard-heartedness. See, we think of a hard heart as a callous one or a cruel one. But rather, it's a stubborn, willful resistance to the purpose of God. The heart in the Jewish mindset primarily has to do more with the thoughts, more with the disposition or the aim of your will than it is the emotional state. And so the Pharisees have a will and a mindset bent on rejecting compassion, rejecting the purpose and frankly, the person of God who's standing in front of them. Jesus rejects their rule keeping game. And what does Jesus do? Jesus lives lawfully. Jesus fulfills the law. He shows the heart of the law by doing good, by saving life. And he says what? Stretch out your hand. And the withered hand and the withered man is restored to health, use, and dignity. When we get angry, people are often harmed or destroyed aren't they? 
When Jesus gets angry, you get healed and restored. Our anger is often so unholy because it doesn't bring life. But Jesus' does. Isn't that amazing about the love of God? Actually, it's the intensity of God's love which actually fuels the intensity of God's wrath and anger over sin. The Pharisees get angry. What do they do? Likely in anger. They go and they hold counsel. They team up with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Now, the Herodians, we don't get much about them in history, um, but it's likely they're supporters of Herod Antipas, if I've said his name correctly. One who had some local authority. Granted, it was somewhat granted by Rome. And see, the Pharisees were typically nationalists, so they hated Rome, anything that had to do with Rome. But their hatred of who is greater, right, of Jesus. They answered Jesus' question from verse 4. Do you see it? They answer it because they go out and say, it is more lawful to plot harm and to plot to kill somebody. The religious teachers, the one who are trying to interpret the law and say, we have the authority, they use the law to live unlawfully to plot harm and to kill. See, the Pharisees needed nothing short of a Copernican revolution of their hearts. And so do we. Nicholas Copernicus was a 16th century Renaissance man. He had vast knowledge from being a mathematician, an astronomer, and a Roman Catholic clergyman. Though he was not the first in history, he is the man often credited with convincing the world that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our immediate solar system, right? And what this was was an entire flip of the world and the cosmos. How people understood everything had to flip, had to change, right? Because the sun was the center, not the earth, he said. When we come to the Lord, we need such a same revolution of our hearts. We need a revolution of how we live for God and how we think he sees us. Why is it easier for us to come to God pleading that we've kept some rules, that we've lived some life worthy of his approval, than to just come to him for the desire of relationship, to know him and to be known by him? Why is it easier to say, look at my life, haven't I tried hard, right? Rather than to say, here's my whole heart, my mind, right? My entire will and life. Even the unchurched, the de-churched, The spiritual but not religious, the apotheists, right? Those who care not if God exists. If you were to ask them, if a heaven existed, how would you get in? The answers that I find when I ask is they say, I've lived a good life, right? I've tried my best. And if God won't accept that, I don't want to be in his heaven. Frankly, they're answering with a lot more honesty than most Christians do. See, the truth is that we want to be the authority. We want to be the Lord of the Sabbath, Lord over others, and left alone to live as we please. Like the Pharisees, we want to be Lord of the Sabbath and everything else. We use our rule-keeping as a manipulation of God so often. God, you said, here are the ten rules. I follow the rules. You give me what I want. Who is the authority in that posture? Right? One man said to me this past week, we exist to believe in God and do good so we don't go to hell. God is a means to an end, to our own ends in that scenario. You're putting God in your debt by keeping the rules. You want his things and not him. This is how you relate to God. 
Perhaps like the Pharisees, we want to be Lord over others. And being the best of all rule keepers, you get, to, you get others to treat you as if you're God. You get praise. You get compliments. You get perhaps worship. And this is people pleasing, which again, this rule keeping is for you. It's not for him. Maybe you're like the Pharisees and we keep the rules, look the part, we get the praise so that when no one is looking, we get to do what we want, right? Our lives, our hearts, our minds, we, we live the rules so that we get others off our backs and still get to be the Lord of our lives. Which of these three do you need to repent of today? Maybe it's all of them. Why do we do these things? We don't do them simply because our hearts are deceitful and wicked, but we also do them because we are weak and withered in our hearts. Luther has another great quote. He says, To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. I'll say that again. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. The Copernican revolution of our hearts is not only that we must stop living for the rules like Pharisees. It's not that you need to stop just being Pharisees. But the revolution of the heart that you need is for you to stop thinking of God like a Pharisee. You need to stop seeing him as standing off, distant, expressionless, scribbling notes about your performance. You haven't lived up to his standards. You will not pass or be best in show. This is why God comes to you. This is why God comes to us, to heal not only withered hands and hearts, but to bring dead people in sin back to life. So that we might come and live for him. You need to see him not as a Pharisee looking down his nose at your unlawful living, but rather as a loving father who purposed from eternity past to save you. You must see him as the son of man and son of God who put on flesh himself to be accused and then later killed by the Pharisees so that you could return to God's loving arms for eternity. You need to see him as the spirit of God who pours out God's love, his grace and mercy and enables you to see rules not as life, no, but him as life. And the law, there's instruction as our facilitating to come to him through Christ. Here Jesus is called to come out of the crowd today, to stand before him in all of your shame of a withered heart, of living for the rules, thinking that's how he'll love you. And instead, come and believe upon Jesus Christ, the one who lived lawfully, who heals your withered heart. Close with this. Two centuries after Copernicus came Robert Robinson. At the ripe age of 17, he believed on Jesus after hearing a brilliant preacher named George Whitfield preach a sermon. At age 23, he penned a beautiful poem, one of our favorite hymns that we sing today, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In his final verse, I find, could be a prayer for us today as a people prone to live for the rules and not for the Lord who loves us. Listen as I read this. He says, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained, forced to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And his lawful living means that withered hearts, withered lives come to life through faith in him. So today, forfeit all your rule-keeping gains. You will not be best in show. Jesus is. And it is through him that you come and find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people so prone to wander, so prone to make our own systems of rules, so prone to try to come to you in the way we want. But thanks be to God that you are the authority. Thanks be to God that you came near to sinners. Thanks be to God that you look at Jesus in order to see and make us righteous. Thank you that you came, Christ Jesus. Give us the faith that we need to trust in you. Bind our wandering hearts to you all our days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.